Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, I have the great pleasure of welcoming Tana McDermott to the podcast. Welcome, Tana. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Tana is the Vice President of Inside Sales at Workiva. They are the leading cloud provider of connected data, reporting, and compliance solutions. So once again, welcome. And I always like to get started by asking our guests to help the audience get to know you a little bit better. And we do that with two questions. The first question is, what is your favorite sales book of all time and why? Favorite sales book of all time? I would probably go back to a pretty old one, but one of the first ones I ever read was How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. You know, it's the foundation of sales, just building strong relationships and being able to connect with people to really elevate your sales career. So that was the key thing that I got out of it. Awesome. And then the second way to get to know you is uh, to find out what's the first thing you ever remember selling. My first job out of college was door-to-door business-to-business sales selling office supplies and credit card processing. So (laughs) I was given a small territory in the city of Kansas City and walked the streets in my territory, trudging through the snow and the 100 degree heat that we had and 100% commission. And as I look back on it now, you know, as tough of a job as that was, it definitely taught me the foundation of sales of, you know, working a territory properly and, you know, law of averages and a lot of the basics. So I feel like office supplies and credit card processing are two very, very different things. Was that some (laughs) creative cross-sell? No, it it wasn't at the same time, but it was two different products. It was kind of one of those multi-level marketing gigs that I got myself into right out of college when you're like, yeah, I don't need healthcare. I don't need, (laughs) this looks like a fun environment to work in. And somehow I did it for a couple of years and was successful at it, but quickly realized that there was other things that I wanted to pursue. Well, today we'll get to the topic of the day, which is how to build a high-performing SDR team. So where do you want to start with that? Where do you start with that when you think about it? So here at Workiva, I've been here for about five years. I've led the inside sales team for about two and a half years now. And we're an aggressively growing software company. And how the company started out, we had a business development team, I'll call it a BDM team, And we had that in place for about eight years and they were successful at building pipeline. We had some changes in management. And so when I came into the picture, the problem at hand was we had a lot of opportunities that they opened, but they weren't necessarily progressing through the pipeline. So we kind of threw everything out the door and started again from scratch. Yeah. And I I mean, I noticed looking at your, at your background, I mean, you didn't come in there as VP of inside sales. You really worked your way up from field readiness training manager to director, then director of inside sales, then to VP of inside sales. So when you came in, I presume you were focused on that field readiness role? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, prior to Workiva, my background was in sales and sales management. So I had always led a BDM team in my previous previous careers. But when I came to Workiva, the guy who hired me at the time said, you know, I was like, I don't know if I want to train all of the account executives that come in the door here. I want to stay in management. And he said, look, Tana, if you get offered a seat on a rocket ship, you don't ask what seat, you just get on and you find your seat later. So I definitely took that to heart, started in the field readiness training team here and trained every single AE who came in for a couple of years. And then I led that department and then um, had the opportunity to move into the inside sales role that I'm in now. On the training, the AE side, 
How did you approach that job to identify what the gaps were and what were those gaps? Yeah, so we were kind of at a pivotal point in the company's career where we were expanding from our SEC reporting solution to multiple other solutions and heavily growing our Sarbanes-Oxley or SOX solution that we were going after. So we had also implemented the challenger sale as a sales methodology. That was about five years ago. And so since then, we've migrated to force management and command of the message. So at the time, it was really getting certified on the challenger sale. And, you know, it was an extensive two weeks of training for every AE who came in the door. So essentially, it was one week of product training and then one week of sales training. So, yeah, it was intense. I've spoken to leaders both at Challenger, which has now been divested back out of the Gartner CEB empire. And I've also spoken with some folks at Force Management. If you compare and contrast those two methodologies, because I know a lot of the listeners are making that choice, right, between those two or others, how would you compare the two? I think the key difference with force management is that there's a such stronger qualification criteria to move an opportunity from stage to stage and really understanding who the different buyers are, which you had in Challenger too, but it's just a little different of, you know, who is the economic buyer and then really trains you to understand, do you have all of the necessary requirements before moving forward? And helping to get your champion on board and and help you to, you know, to get to that economic buyer and keep the deal moving. On Challenger, I think the thing most people know from Challenger sale is the teach, tailor, and take control, which is all about bringing high ROI ideas that prospects may not have thought of. Is that an accurate description of how Challenger was presented for you guys? Yep, you're exactly right. Is that ethos also in the force management training? Yeah, in some aspects, you know, it's kind of like after you go through multiple sales trainings of all these different methodologies, like they all kind of merge together at some point, right? <laughs> you know, it's getting getting the customer to talk more than you, asking the right questions, listening, you know, recapping with the mantra in force management, you know, it just comes back to clear communication. You know, what expectations do you have for the customer? I definitely think that that's still important from the challenger is, you know, are you teaching and educating them something about their business that they haven't really thought of? You know, are you making it painful enough for them that they're actually going to want to move? So is it a nice to have or a need to have? And how do you test when you were training people to be able to do that? How do you actually test and certify them that they are capable of, of making that kind of a sale? Well, at the three month mark, we had something that we called a business fit certification And so, you know, it's a lot of information, especially when you're in this industry and we don't typically hire people with an accounting and finance background. So, you know, you're learning the personas, you're learning the ins and outs of financial reporting, the solutions that we're selling. So we let them get out in the field a little bit, you know, go on a few meetings. And then at the three month mark, we would bring them back for a scenario based situation where, you know, we would say, here's the situation that you're walking into. Take me through from beginning of the sales process through the end, including proposal and negotiation, the whole bit. And we would have a panel of people there that, you know, they were selling to, and we would be hard on them. And, you know, we would rather you get beat up in that learning environment instead of in front of a CFO of a Fortune 500 company. So you had been running that field readiness team for a while and then made the transition over, I, it looks like, into inside sales. So what did you encounter when you made that transition? Yes, when I got into this role, we had a lot of pipeline, but it was opportunities that weren't necessarily qualified. And we found that they weren't progressing through the pipeline. 
So if you looked at our BDM team at that time, like there was no upward mobility for them. In fact, like I like to say like they were BDMers for life <laughs> because there wasn't anywhere for them to grow. And so that was the first change that I made in that role, you know, looking to see who we had on board at that time and really where they wanted to take their career. It's like, we're going to create more quality opportunities if somebody wants to make a difference in the company. Like, I know that that kind of sounds cliche, but it's like, if you wanted to eventually get into an AE role and manage your own territory, like, you know that you're going to get there faster if you're creating quality opportunities in an SDR role with the ability to move up in the company. What did you identify as the root causes of why the ops weren't good? It's a lot of things. Can't pinpoint one thing. You know, we identified that it was messaging. We identified that it was just poor qualification. What we did is implemented a step in between an AE going on site for the meeting and actually the opportunity creation, right? So now we have an intro call that's remote, which is the qualification step. And the qualification of that meeting is actually how our SDRs get paid now. That was the biggest one. Originally, you were paying on basically the the BDM. The meeting happening. On the meeting with the AE happening or the meeting just with the with the BDM happening? Yeah, there was multiple ways that we used to do it, but they would get paid if they created the opportunity. And then they also moved to a way where, where they were paid on the on-site meeting. But then we were in a situation where that's a lot of overhead, right? Like you have account executives who are flying all over the country for an on-site demo when it's not actually a qualified meeting, right? So two very different problems. But now we have the intro call. So inside sellers create an opportunity only when there's pain. So we're talking to somebody that's involved in the process. We can't always get to an economic buyer in that prospecting call, right? It's unrealistic, but we like to get to somebody who either a champion or a sponsor who's involved in the process that can get us to that economic buyer. Once we identify that there's pain with our financial reporting process and they're willing to take the next step, meaning is it painful enough that they want to solve this issue within the next six months, then we create the opportunity and we have an intro call on the opportunity, which is with the AE and the inside seller and the prospect. And that's the handoff. So after the intro call occurs with the prospect, then the AE dispositions that meeting as either took place valid or took place not valid. If it's took place valid, that means that the opportunity is going to move on to the next stage in the sales process. And that's what the inside rep is paid on. Do you also pay them to any extent on close one business or do you stop at basically the took place valid? Yeah, we recently implemented a, a weighted point structure. So like they get more points for a new logo or new solution opportunity versus an existing customer migrating to different pricing. So they do get it incentivized by getting an additional point if they created that opportunity this year and it moved to a closed one. So it definitely incentivizes them to one, create quality opportunities, and then two, stay engaged with their AEs on the progression of those opportunities. You just mentioned staying engaged with the AEs. I know one of the big debates in the world of insights, sales and sales development, business development, whatever terminology you want to use, is whether or not you operate in a round robin or a one-to-one or small pods. What have you guys opted to do? You could think of it as a pod. They're aligned to specific AEs in the field. I mentioned the career ladder. Um, so we have SDRs and then we have our strategic field tellers on the outside. So we have strategic account managers on the inside. So within inside sales, we have SDRs and then we have SAMs. So they basically the SDRs support smaller to medium-sized companies. Strategic are supporting our larger accounts. 
SDRs are a ratio of about one to four, so one inside seller per four regional sales directors. For the SAMs, it's a little closer ratio, so it's one to two or one to three in most situations. So that inside seller is working closely as a SAM with three AEs out in the field. I know just from my own experience that that alignment is so critical to the development of the inside seller SDR or SAM into being able to grow into those other roles. Yeah, so the typical career progression is the SDR to the SAM, and then the SAMs are really a bench for our field sales roles. So like within the past year, we've promoted about 15 SAMs to a corporate AE that's managing their own territory. So even as an AE, like the foundation of what they need to do is prospecting, right? So for example, last year, the Insight team generated about 40% of the closed one or bookings, you know, revenue that came in. So yeah, it's it's a hefty amount of the pipeline that we provide, but the AEs out in the field are still building that too. So, you know, it's definitely critical as they have that career progression, that that's the foundation that they can fall back on. I know you mentioned in building a high-performing team, there were a few things that you needed to address. One obviously was a qualification that we talked through. Another was career progression. You also mentioned messaging. How have you altered the messaging over time? Yeah, so with the expansion of multiple solutions, then you get a lot of different personas in in the mix. And we have a great marketing team and we've definitely evolved over time. Like it's always, you know, there's always some sort of like some wedges could be bigger than others between sales and marketing, right? <laughs> and that seems to always change over time. But yeah, our messaging has definitely improved over even the course of the past six months, um, but definitely over the course of the past year. So how it's evolved is we have all of these playbooks and each playbook has a different messaging for that solution. Well, when you look at it, when you're actually calling into a company to try to simplify it for an inside seller, we took the approach of more who to call for what, you know, meaning like if you're going to call a CAO, here's all of the things that you could talk about as far as reporting. So take a step back and, you know, kind of going back to force management and command of the message, it's more of not necessarily talking about those individual reports that we can help that CAO with, but what does a CAO care about? Well, they care about getting their annual bonus, you know, having their financials reported accurately when it's submitted to the SEC or to the board of directors or to shareholders, right? So talking about it in terms of like, what's their biggest pain point in the reporting process for them? Hopefully that makes sense. Like just kind of taking a step back and, you know, if you only have 30 seconds to really hook somebody on the phone, like what's the most important thing for them? So that's how we really simplified it for the inside sellers is saying, here's the three main people that you want to call on an account. You know, here's your hook as far as let's say, you know, 85% of accounting and finance executives don't trust the data that they're reporting to their board of directors. Do you also feel the same way? right? Like that could be the hook to get them on the phone. And then what are the three qualification questions that you're going to ask that we can get in that initial phone call? And then what's our proof point of, you know, hey, here's how we helped other companies in a similar situation. Would you be open to discussing this more? I love the 85% of CFOs or what have you don't trust their financial reporting. Do you feel the same way? What comes before that when you're coaching people on their on their call? How much rapport how precise are you in in that talk track in the early part of the call? Yeah, I mean, it depends if it's an existing customer or non-customer, but new customer, you know, companies are so siloed, especially the sizes that we're calling into now. So their SEC reporting team could be using us already. 
and their stocks team doesn't even know what the SEC team is using. So a lot of times that's how we'll start out with a current customer is, you know, I'm calling you on the inside rep on your account, supporting such and such AE. Company ABC is already using WDesk for their SEC reporting solution. Wanted to also talk to you about using it for stocks. And then go in with, you know, what I hear from other companies is blah, blah, blah. Do you also feel that same way? Okay. So there is a good amount of positioning before you go in, especially in the existing customer, which makes sense. Because if you establish that you already have a relationship, they're that much more likely to speak with you. Yeah. But a non-customer, I mean, after the minimal pleasantries that we go into, I mean, we're calling on accounting and finance executives, right? Number one, they're not used to getting prospect calls. Number two, by nature of just their persona, they're typically not the most talkative. It's a lot of very dry conversations. So we do find that that hook is coming up, you know, sooner in conversations than not. Yeah. I mean, there's the social styles thing that, you know, if possible, I guess you try to figure out if this person is a, a driver or an expressive or an amiable or a quantitative sort of person. And then I suppose a lot of these people that you're calling into are more in that quantitative section. So that data point is going to resonate much more quickly with them. For sure. And our inside team does their homework before they call in. I mean, it's a more strategic approach. So we use LinkedIn Navigator a lot, you know, to just understand, like, do we have some sort of connection with this person? You know, did they used to work at a company who we have a contact at or whatever the case may be? Like, we try to find that commonality which definitely helps break the ice on that initial conversation. So I guess another thing that is a big factor in a high-performing sales development team is also how you manage territories. Mm-hmm. How have you evolved that over time or if you have evolved that over time? We used to be by solution and then we got into a situation where it really wasn't the best for the, the customer experience where you know you would have multiple people calling into that same account. Now we're geographically based and Typically, the AE can sell every solution that we have, so it's easier for an inside rep to call in supporting that AE and go in targeting the persona and then you know, get a meeting with multiple solutions. Since you're very directly aligned with the AEs, whatever accounts and or geographies that the AEs are on, your inside sellers can create the initial opportunities with. I guess another thing that is an important lever is hiring. So how do you think about hiring your inside sellers? So for SDRs, typically we hire somebody with at least a few years sales experience, you know, probably five years sales experience minimum. Ideally, they have previous SDR experience. You know, they're used to making a high number of dials on the phone. Our um, expectation is typically 50 phone calls. You know, it's not necessarily quantity, but more quality of the phone call. And then for the SAMs, like typically, like I mentioned before, we like to promote from within, from that SDR to SAM. But when we were building out this model, we did have to hire a lot of strategic account managers on the inside to get it started. And those type of people, they were typically came from an AE role previously, they're willing to take their a step back in their career and hungry to get back into that position. And a lot of ours, our hires come from referrals internally. Stepping back to your the first role, the people that you're hiring with, you know, five years of, of prior experience, that's quite a lot of experience for someone who is in a sales development role. I would assume that you have to pay a premium to get those kinds of people, or is it or is it not that case in your geography? Some areas are more competitive with others, but we're definitely competitive in the marketplace. 
I mean, I don't have inside sellers in New York City for that reason. (laughs) But yeah, but across the board, the locations that we're hiring for, yeah, it's very competitive. And then you said you, you held them accountable to 50 calls per day. To what extent are your managers actually inspecting each person every day? And and if it's you know 5 p.m. rolls around and they're mm-hmm. off their 50 call target or 6 p.m. rolls around whenever the whistle blows there, how tightly do you actually hold them to those numbers? You know, I always tell them, like, if you're hitting your numbers at the end of the quarter, like, we're not going to inspect how many phone calls you're making in a day or a week, right? But that is the number one thing, that if you're consistently behind plan, we're definitely going to look at your daily activity, right? It's law of averages. So our expectations for the inside sellers is they have a quarterly qualified opportunity quota. And then we break that out into a monthly goal to ensure that they're on track. I do think that that is what has made us a high-performing SDR team is that strict accountability, not so much on the phone calls, but just, you know, are they consistently on track on a monthly basis? And it's like, if you have one bad month, like with a, you know, four to six month sales cycle, like that's really going to shoot you in, in the foot two quarters down the road, which is really the the benefit of having a dedicated inside sales team is, you know, as a seller, like you're just thinking about oh, a lot of times, you know, what can I close this quarter? or the first half of this year to hit my goal. With a dedicated inside team, you know, you're always focused two quarters out to ensure that the company has that pipeline that you need. So one thing that we we do on a monthly basis is we have monthly business reviews. And it's a checkpoint at the end of each month where the manager builds out a, a template where they can see, you know, how many phone calls, emails they have in relation to their goals, as well as how many qualified opportunities they got that month. And then there's, you know, space for the manager to write text, whether, you know, areas of opportunities, strengths, whatever it may be, it's that checkpoint at the end of the month. And, you know, it's just like the psychology of knowing that that call is going to happen at the end of that month with your manager. And if you have a bad month, it's not really a fun call to have. So it increases the consistency by just, you know, holding them accountable because they know it's going to happen. And you said your team handles both outbound and inbound. Yep. Yeah, I know there were some a few recent great recent reports put out by some of the sales development inside sales research firms like Bridge Group and Topo, and I think I think their benchmark for monthly outbound opportunities created was somewhere in the ten to twelve range, and then for inbound, I think it's a much wider range, but you know it can be anywhere from probably twenty to thirty. So I would assume your monthly quota is, is some blend of those two numbers. Yeah. And in fact, we don't detail down our quota from inbound to outbound, but about 70% of the pipeline is from outbound activity and 30% is from inbound. You know, we haven't talked yet about the managers and it's such a critical role. Who do you hire and or promote to become managers of your inside sales team? So there's the career path for to get to an AE through the inside as well. Throughout, you know, conversations and these monthly business reviews that we have, we understand not everybody wants to go that route into an AE, right? The other track that we have is called an associate manager training program. So essentially, we have a bunch of managers internally, too. So what an associate manager is on the, this is only on the inside team, is that they're still in 70% production. But they're coaching and leading a team conducting weekly one-on-ones with typically three to four people. So that 30% reduction in production that they have takes the place with management responsibilities. So they report directly to a manager on the inside sales team. 
We also have a six-month training program that goes along with it. It's biweekly calls, you know, sharing effective best practices of building and managing a team. It provides a bench for managers too. So just recently I was able to promote an associate manager to a full-time manager as we expanded another team. What do you look for in those people that actually do make it out of the associate manager training up into the sales manager role? Yeah, somebody with a high level of integrity, somebody who has the fire, you know, somebody who wants to win. Um, you know, managers have a quarterly quota as well. So, you know, they're always fighting for president's club, you know, as well as a nice paycheck too. So somebody who has strong communication skills, you know, we work very closely with the AE managers as well in the field to really understand, you know, what's happening to the opportunities. Are they progressing? Or do we have certain solutions that aren't progressing? you know, a lot of that analysis that I'm doing and then feeding to them. Sometimes it's an AE who goes into the manager role or sometimes like what you guys have, it's an SDR inside seller who goes into the management role. But the big question is then what next? Have you guys thought about what to do next after the person that's been in that SDR manager or inside sales manager role for two or three years? Yeah, that's a great question. So last year I promoted somebody from the inside manager role to a corporate AE manager. So that is one route that we go the other route, you know, I have a diverse group of managers on my team, you know, what's the saying, like build a team of people who replaced you, you know, so <laughs> I do kind of have a protege on my team that I'm continuing to coach up and that one of her goals is to be in my position, which is great. Another one of my managers has more of a marketing background. She was formerly a VP of sales and marketing. And so I have her very engaged um, with the marketing team and meeting weekly with the demand gen team. And so, you know, I definitely know as we continue to expand, there's going to be further opportunities for her to go the direction that she wants with her career. And then I have a couple of newer managers who have been in this role for about a year. So continuing to coach them and really, you know, I don't think that we're there yet with identifying them of where they want to go. But yeah, I'm definitely supportive of anywhere in the company that, you know, any manager wants to go and I'm committed to helping them get there. That's a great progression as opposed to having them drop back down into being, not down is the wrong word, but move into being AEs before they can move their way up into AE manager. It's been motivating for them. We have some people in the office and a lot of people remote too. And one of the advantages of being remote is, you know, some of them have young kids, some of them have other, you know, family stuff going on where they don't have the ability to travel like you would as much as an AE role, right? And so that's, you know, as they want to get into management too, it's been very motivating for them to have that opportunity. So you have those at remote managers as well? Yes. Outstanding. As you reflect on just all the things we've talked about, and, and if you're trying to give someone a few nuggets of advice on, on what really matters on how to build a high-performing SDR team, what, what advice would you give them? I would say the, the accountability is key. It's typically a two quarter ramp. And I would say if somebody is unperforming for two quarters too, like you've got to have that critical conversation, like, is this the right fit? You know, it's easy to get burned out in an SDR role. So just really having your pulse on, you know, how do you keep your people excited? How do you keep them happy to continue to do the job and like keep them thinking about the big picture? You know, what's next? Continue to create that vision and communicate that vision to them. If people do want to connect with you, how would they connect with you? Yeah, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, Tana McDermott, or shoot me an email, tana.mcdermott at workiva.com. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. 
Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.